You can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 through 25 today. Uh, if you have a welcome table Bible, it's on page 2. Um, so we're, we're steadily moving, right? Last week we are on page 1. And um, uh, we're, like I said, we're going to look at... We started, or we looked at the first few verses of chapter 2 last week along with chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 2 today, verses 4 through 25. And again, just a reminder, especially if you're new with us, we, before we started this series in Genesis, we did a five-week overview series of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah in Jewish culture. It's one book uh, uh, with five parts talking about the history of uh, Israel's relationship with their covenant God. And so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's important that we understand, even as we go through Genesis, that it's this connected piece to the rest of the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is this connected piece to the rest of Scripture, right? Because we're dealing with, with an, a, a people of an old covenant, but we're looking, we are looking back on it as people of the new covenant in Christ. And so we need to understand their relationship with God, but then how our relationship with God has been uh, changed, has been renewed in Christ, and, uh, and all of it goes back to the first human beings. And that's what we're looking at today. And so we need to keep that in perspective in mind, or that perspective in mind as we look at Genesis 2, because it lays the foundation uh, not only for Israel's relationship with God, but for ours as well. And so, once again, I want to pray and, uh, and just ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you uh, would use it to strengthen your people, to make dead hearts alive, and to bring glory to your name. Amen. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus says that the two greatest commandments in all of Scripture, the two greatest commands in all of Scripture are these. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, everything that they had in Jesus' day was summed up by those two things. Love God, love people. The, 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 the two things that God wants us to do most are not tasks to accomplish, though, Right? The relationships to cherish, to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. And although these commands themselves are specifically given later in uh, the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy, for love the Lord your God, we, we talked about that, Deuteronomy 6, and in Leviticus in chapter 19, to love your neighbor as yourself, there are specific commands that are given, and yet Jesus brings them to their fullness in himself, and they are rooted in these relationships. And so here's our, here's our main idea for this morning, okay? It, it, God created us for relationship with him and with one another, and so we should never try to live this life on our own. God created us for relationship with him and with one another, so we should never try to live this life on our own, and I'm already guilty of that. Are you? It's hard, isn't it? We're going to see the importance of this as we watch the unfolding of these relationships, God and man, man and woman, in our passage this morning. And we'll use these markers just to kind of help us as we go along. We're going to, we're going to talk about the man, the garden, the command, and the woman. The man, the garden, the command, and the woman. So first is the man. Look at verses 1 through 6. 
Genesis chapter 2, not 1 through 6, 4 through 6. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land. No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come from, up from the earth and water all the ground. Now, at first glance, we, we might read these verses and assume that Moses is saying that there, there wasn't any vegetation on the land yet because God first needed to create Adam to take care of it, right? But if you remember from the broader creation account in chapter 1, God caused the land to produce seed-bearing fruit, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the third day, and then he created man to inhabit it on the sixth day. God didn't make the man for the plants. He made the plants for the man to provide life-sustaining food for him. So are these verses in chapter 2 contradicting what Moses said in chapter 1? Not if we take a closer look at what he's saying here. Last week we talked about how one way to understand the meaning of, this, of a scripture passage is, is by how often uh, the, 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 the author talks about something, right? And the predominant word, the predominant theme in chapter one was the land. It was the land. But here in chapter two, while the land still remains a key aspect, it's clear that Moses' focus has shifted on why that land is so important. Overwhelmingly in this passage, Moses mentions the man and God more than anything else which cues us in that the emphasis here is on the relationship between the two, right? The relationship between man and God. It's also interesting to note that as Moses' focus shifts on the relationship between God and man, here in chapter 2, he begins to use the covenant name of God. Did you notice in chapter 1, it's, the word is it's just God the whole time. As soon as he starts talking about, the God, about God and man, he says, the Lord God. This is the covenant name of God. And this is the first time it's used. In the English, you'll, you'll notice again that phrase, Lord God, in all caps, right? It's used throughout the, this passage instead of simply God, like chapter 1. And that Lord, in all caps, is this covenant name of God. It's Yahweh, as he was known to the Israelites. Adam didn't know God by that name. And actually, neither did Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. That name was revealed to Moses and the Israelites as he prepared to bring them out of Egypt. Listen to Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord, using his name, covenant name. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land that they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord, Yahweh. 
God was providing Israel with land so that he could establish this relationship with them. And that's a reflection of what he's doing here with Adam. Even though the creation of man happened long before Israel ever came, became God's people, people of the covenant with God, Moses is u- using references that are familiar to Israel here in order to link their relationship with God back to the first human being's relationship with God. That's why it's helpful to notice some of the other phrases that Moses uses here because he often uses these exact phrases throughout the Pentateuch in order to link things together. They act as like hyperlinks, okay? bringing us back and forth to different places in the whole story that he's telling and to work these things together in the minds of his Israelite audience. One example of this passage is the phrase, plant of the field in verse 5. That's a different phrase than the one that he uses in chapter 1 to talk about the vegetation. In chapter 1, he says, seed-bearing plants and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, and he repeats that phrase over and over and over. But here, he's referring to the vegetation in a different way, and that's because he's not pointing the readers backward to creation. He's pointing them forward to the fall. That phrase shows up again in chapter 3. Look at Genesis 3, 17 and 18, and he said to the man... Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. There's the phrase, plants of the field. In Genesis 2.5, Moses also says that the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. That phrase shows up again in chapter 7 when the Lord warns Noah that he will make it rain on the land for 40 days and 40 nights and wipe out every living thing off the face of the earth. The phrase in chapter 2 is not talking about God making it rain for the plants. He was already sufficiently doing that by bringing mist up from the ground. It says that in verse 6. Instead, this phrase is a hyperlink to God's judgment of mankind in response to the rampant spread of sin throughout the earth. Moses is planting these seeds of warning to the Israelites as they're on the cusp of the promised land. This relationship is vital. This relationship is vital. So we could rephrase uh, Genesis 2, 4 through 6 in this way. When Yahweh first made the whole universe, the curse had not yet affected the ground Yahweh had not yet flooded the whole earth in judgment, and he had not yet sent the man away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground, also shows up in chapter 3, from which he was taken, but Yahweh himself cared for the earth. This would have been a good reminder for the Israelites that their covenant God is not oppressive like the Egyptians who forced them into backbreaking labor. He rescued them from that. He began his relationship with man. A different way. He's gentle and he's caring. Moses is telling them here about the same God who brought life-giving water out of the ground, not just for the plants in the mist, but out of the rock for them when he brought them out of Egypt and through the thorns and the thistles, the, the bushes of the earth, the shrubs of the wilderness into the land of plenty. It's important for them to remember God's love and care as Moses continues the story. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. 
Now, Moses is making a really clear distinction here that although God made man in his own image, just as as we're told in chapter 1, man is not equal to God. Man is not equal to God. Man is still a created being, and the creator God is the one who gave him life. God has life within himself. Man does not. He needs the breath of life from God. He must be given life by God. God is the potter. Man is the clay. This is made evident in the similarity in the Hebrew words for man and ground that are used right here. The Hebrew for man is Adam, right? It's where we get the name Adam. The Hebrew for ground is Adamah. We lose that in the English, but that's a word play in the Hebrew. It's, it's meant to draw our connection to these things. This is a created being, and God is the creator. So what's the nature of their relationship besides the fact that God is the creator and man is the creation? Well, we need to learn more as we keep reading and we look at the garden. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that phrase, pleasing uh, uh, pleasing in appearance and good for food. Pleasing in appearance and good for food. Here it's describing every tree in the garden, including the tree of life, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But next week we're going to see it described in a a, a very similar phrase, but it's going to show up in a really different context. Way different than the one being described here. So, put a little earmark on that. We'll keep reading. Verse 10. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the, the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, it it might be tempting, but it's really difficult to try to pinpoint the exact location of Eden based on the description of these verses. Because two of these rivers are really familiar, even still today. Two of them, we have no idea where they are or were. Scholars differ on on their their locations, but there are more important things in the description here for the Israelites to understand than where Eden was located, because they're on the cusp of a new land, right? They're on the cusp of a promised land, a land that God, in his covenant with Abraham, promised to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his descendants in Genesis chapter 15. God promised this land to Abraham, and he used rivers as the northern and southern borders. You know what the northern river border was? The Euphrates. This is a familiar river to the Israelites. The connection between the lush paradise of Eden and the fruitful land that God was giving to them in the land of Canaan, Canaan excuse me, would not be lost on the Israelites. In addition to that, golden onyx are, are mentioned back here in verse 12. These were also prominent materials used in the building of the tabernacle and the priestly garments later on in, uh, in the book of Exodus, I believe, described there. With, with all this imagery uh, of the garden, uh, uh, connecting the Garden of Eden to the Promised Land and to the tabernacle, 
we can see along with the Israelites that the Lord didn't just create the garden so that the man would have a place to live. He created the garden so that he could dwell there with the man in relationship to him. They could commune together in fellowship with one another. But there's still more to the relationship, right? We're getting closer. We're, we're, we're getting more details, but we don't have them all. The Lord gave the man responsibility in the garden, and we learn that as we keep looking at, at, at what's next, and we look at the command. So look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now verse 8 already told us that God placed the man in the garden. Now in verse 15 he tells us why to work it and to watch over it. The man was to cultivate and to, to care for what the Lord had created and given to him. But the sense here in, in verse 15 points to more than just uh, the man being some kind of glorified gardener, like God's given him this thing and, and go ahead, do, do your own thing, right? In English, the, in verse 15 and verse 8, they both say that God placed the man in the garden. It's the same word in English, but even though that verb placed is the same in English, it's different in, in the original Hebrew. And in, in verse 8, it just simply means he put him there. He placed him there in the garden. But in verse 15, this Hebrew word conveys this deeper sense of, of relationship. It implies that God rested the man safely in the garden to enjoy his presence. He didn't just put him there. Brought him there. Rested him there. In the book of Numbers, the, the same Hebrew words translated here in verse 15 as work and watch over, they're used together to describe the responsibilities of the priesthood in the, in the tabernacle sanctuary. In the sanctuary of the garden, in the Garden of Eden, God placed the man there to rest in him, to love him, to obey him, and to worship him. And the man's care for the garden on God's behalf was to be reflective of this kind of relationship. Verse 16 and 17 are reflective of that too. Let's take a look. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now on the one hand, this is, this is an ominous foreshadowing of what's coming in chapter three, right? Listen, we're not, we all know what's coming. But here in the context of the beginning of God's relationship with mankind. It reveals several things that help us understand that relationship and see this, this beauty that God has created in the midst of it. The first recorded words between God and man are a command from God to the man. God has the authority as the creator and man must obey God as his creation. But just because this is a command, that doesn't mean it's a harsh one coming from a harsh God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The command begins with this reminder of the gracious gift of the man's freedom to enjoy all that he's given. That's a huge theme in all of Scripture. God's commands always follow God's reminder of who he is, his love for his people, and all that he's already freely given them. God's commands for us to follow him are an extension of his reminder of his grace. And we respond to his grace in obedience to his commands. 
the gracious gift that he's, been, that he's given to the, the man here, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not the best tree in the garden. Remember verse 9? It tells us that this tree is one among many trees, and every tree, all of them, are pleasing to look at, and they're good for food. And Adam is free to eat from any of these trees, including, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden. This is a gracious gift from a good God, a God who loves the humanity that he had created and wants to shower his blessings upon them. Look at all that I've given you. It's all sufficient. It's all, all good and perfect. But God also wants the man to trust him. And so he gives him a gracious warning. God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, but nowhere does it say that God gave that tree to the man. That's his. It's mine. This is the Lord's. He never gave that one like he did all the others. And God doesn't want the man to take what isn't his to take. So God tells the man what will happen if he does. If you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. These are words of love. This is not harsh. Is it unloving for a dad to warn his child not to touch an electrical outlet? These are words of love. One study Bible commented on verse 17 saying this, I love how they put it, if God did not love, he would not warn. Mom and dad, it's loving to warn your children. Kids, your parents love you, so they warn you. God's relationship with the man is one of life giving love and blessing from the creator to the created and one of trust and love and obedience and worship from the created to the creator. It's a relationship that comes from and finds rest in the God who knows good from evil and longs to guard his cherished creation from evil and freely give him everything that is good. Everything. Which leads us to the woman. Look at verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each, of, each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. All throughout chapter 1, we hear this refrain, and God saw that it was good, right? As he brought all of creation into existence over and over and over, this is good. And when he was done, this is very good. This is the first time we see God say that something is not good. What is it that's not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. But he's not alone, right? 
He's not alone. This entire time we've been witnessing the development of this relationship that he has with God himself. Is, is that not enough? There's nothing that the man needs that God cannot and will not provide for him. He created him for this relationship, for this purpose. And God knows that although the man is, is made in God's image, the man is not equal to God. God is the creator, man is the created. The man is still a created being. And although the man lacks nothing in his relationship with God, nothing, God does not have to do this. There is one thing he lacked in his relationship with the rest of creation. And the Bible tells us it's a helper corresponding to him. And so God, as the giver of good gifts, gives the man what he lacked. And again, there's some really great wordplay here in the Hebrew that highlights just how good this gift is of the woman to the man. Right after God says that he will make a helper for the man, that the narrative says that he, he formed out of the ground every animal and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man. Back in verse 7, it says that he formed the man out of the ground too. You remember that? These are similar phrases again. These connect to each other. But we already know in chapter 1 that the man and the animals don't match. These animals are created to their, according to their kind. These animals are created according to their kind. These animals are created according to their kind. But God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. In God's likeness, the man names the animals, just as God named things. God brought the animals to him to see what he would call them, Chapter 1, God calls things what they are. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. He calls the sky, sky. Earth, seas. Whatever God called it, that's what it was. Whatever the man called each living creature, that's what its name was. God's sharing in this authority, this dominion with his creation, his cherished creation, He's graciously sharing this with the man so that he could serve as God's priestly representative in the garden. And it's through this naming process that the man, the man realizes every other creature has a counterpart of its kind. But he doesn't. Every other creature has a match to itself. But he doesn't. And although every wild animal and every bird of the sky was formed out of the ground as he was, none of them are truly like the man. This is why dogs can never truly be man's best friend. I love animals. I know they're great companions. But they can never replace what God has created for us. Enjoy the pets. But we need each other. It's only after God forms the woman out of the man that he's able to find a helper corresponding to him. Only then is he able to find his match. And when God brings her to the man, just as he brought all the other animals to the man, all the other creation, the creatures to the man, Adam breaks out into this love poem. If you notice in your Bible, that section is indented, just like chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 28. That's a cue for us to, to know that this is now poetry. This is not just prose. This is not just a description, a narrative description. This is a song. And 
Adam breaks out into a love poem, again, reflective of the one whose image he bears. The end of chapter one, God breaks out into a love poem over his special creation. And the special unity and closeness between the, the man and the woman is brought out even more uh, uh, clearly by this clever wordplay in verse 23. The Hebrew word for man in this verse is not Adam, as it has been all throughout chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 1, as it's been every other time so far. Now it's this word, uh, is. Okay? And the Hebrew word for woman is isa. It's a poetic way of saying that they belong together. They belong together. And Moses adds commentary in verse 24 to show that this relationship between the first man and the first woman is the foundation for marriage. One man and one woman as God has created them to be bonded together in unity for as long as they live. This is the foundation. Chapter 1 makes it clear that the woman is made in God's image just as the man is, which means she has the same dignity the same value as the man does. But in both chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's clear that the woman is not a clone of the man. God created the male and female. He is a man. She is a woman. She's like him in, in, in a way that no other creature can be, and yet she's also distinct from him. She corresponds to him. She's not a copy of him. And that brings harmony to the relationship that God has chosen to be, a, to be foundational to his blessing for them, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and to his command for them to serve together as representatives of the God in whose image they have been created, to rule dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth, everything that wasn't made like they were. Chapter 2 ends with fruitful and harmonious relationships between God and man, between man and woman, between God and creation, and between people and creation. Everything is good, really good. But things go quickly downhill from here, right? And we're going to see that in chapter 3 next week. But as people of the new covenant, what, what do we learn from this? You and I were not created to be alone. We were not created to be alone. Our very existence revolves around our relationship with the God who created us and the ones he created to be like us. And so we cannot ignore and we cannot neglect those relationships and expect to find fruitful and fulfilling lives. It just doesn't work. Not everyone will experience an earthly marriage, but earthly marriage is not the pinnacle relationship that human beings can experience. It's not the thing that is, that is the, the, the top of the line here described here. It's the gift from the relationship that is the top, right? It's a joy and a gift, but that's because it's also this symbol that points us uh, to the most important relationship of all, this one between Christ and the church. We talked about this when we went through the book of Ephesians. All who are in Christ are united to him for all eternity as his bride. Why? Because he left his father in heaven. And he came to earth as a man so that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he might become one with all who put their trust in him alone. 
for the forgiveness of their sins. If by faith you depend on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and his glorious resurrection in power, you are bonded to him. To use the word that Moses uses at the end there. You're bonded to him permanently by his Holy Spirit who now dwells in you as this seal of Christ's fidelity to you as your bridegroom and this guarantee of the inheritance that's waiting for you along with a seat at the table at the great wedding feast to come. As your bridegroom, Jesus even gives you his name. That's why we're called Christians. Because you come from him. But Christ does not have many brides. He has one, one bride, the church. That means that your oneness with Christ can only truly be experienced through your oneness with those who make up Christ's church. Christ has so identified himself with his church that we are described in the book of Ephesians as his own body, his own flesh, similar to the way Adam described Eve in Genesis 2.23, and as members of Christ's body, when we rest in Christ's finished work on our behalf and we spur one another on toward increasing love and, and obedience to him while we marvel at his wondrous love for us, we, we worship him together and we build one another up until we all reach the unity of the faith in the knowledge of God's Son, our bridegroom, and we grow in every way into him who is our head. Jesus Christ, the one who's been given authority over us. And the beauty is that whether you're single or you've been married for 50 years, whether you're widowed or divorced or remarried, none of those things is the standard of measurement which determines your unity with Christ and his church. Now, there are things that we would want to talk about, right? And, and, and help see God's grace in the midst of messy relationships. But none of those th- things is the standard of measurement that determines your unity to Christ and his church. We're united to Christ by what? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't have to have the experience of an earthly marriage to understand the experience of the heavenly marriage. It's backwards. Christ has united you to himself and his church, then you never have to go through anything in this harsh and broken world alone. Isn't he a gracious and loving God who cares for us? There's not one thing that you have to endure by yourself. Do you feel alone? Is there something that's pulling you away from others? My prayer is that you're convinced by God's word that that that's not what he wants for you. That's not what we want for you here. To borrow a quote from a friend of mine, church should not be the place where we come to be alone together. As believers, we have a God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. We have brothers and sisters in an ever-growing family of God that he's given to us to help us as they walk alongside us through the ups and downs of life. Wouldn't whatever it is that you're attempting to manage on your own be so much more bearable with our Lord and his family? Right next to you. Why not lean into them? 
and ask them to lean into you. There's no amount of sin in your life that our bridegroom is unwilling to pay for by laying his own life down for you. There's no hardship that you've experienced that he hasn't already known. There's no amount of shame that you carry that he hasn't already carried himself to the cross. There's no earthly reconciliation that's impossible because Jesus has made reconciliation with God himself possible. There's no reason to try to isolate yourself from God and his people because it's his gentleness, his care, his, his love that unites us together for our good and his glory. So whether you're heartbroken and lonely or you're a hard-hearted loner, I know we all have days like that. Please hear Christ's soft and tender call. Come to me, all you who are weary and labored and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Draw near to him and his people because he loves you too deeply to leave you alone. And he's given us this mission that we can't even accomplish by ourselves. We can only carry this out together. While it's true that the creation mandate to multiply and fill the earth with physical children is only possible through a man and a woman and designed from the beginning to be carried out solely within the context of a marriage. The beauty of the new creation mandate is that every believer, regardless of your earthly marital status, has been called by Christ to go and make disciples throughout all the earth. Spiritual children are made when sinners are reconciled to God through Christ. And as reconciled sinners, as children of God, as the bridegroom of Christ, we've been given the minister, as the bride of Christ, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We subdue the earth by proclaiming the gospel. So that through it, through the word of God, by the spirit of God, Christ can woo his bride and unite her to himself. God created us for relationship with him and with one another, so we should never try to live this life on our own. It just doesn't work. These two relationships are foundational to our existence. That's why they're in Genesis 2. And they're pivotal and foundational to our purpose that Jesus summarizes in the New Testament. We cannot carry out the two greatest commandments in all of Scripture without these two relationships. There's no such thing as a loner Christian. And no Christian should ever have to feel alone. No unbeliever should either. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we say, look, Jesus is here. We can't avoid relationships that are messy by pushing others away from our mess or walking away from theirs. We need each other. We must rest in Christ's finished work together. We must remind one another of God's faithful love for us through Jesus. We must encourage one another to continue in the freedom of obedience to the God who loves us and who's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And we must worship him together as we unite around the grace-filled truth of the gospel and point one another to the day that is coming. It's coming. 
when we will be presented together, not individually, together as Christ's radiant and spotless bride. And we'll join with all the saints in the great wedding feast of our bridegroom, united once again and finally in perfect harmony with him and with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't just teach us about you. It causes us to know you, draws us to you, forms our lives with you by your spirit, through your son. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that, that anybody that feels alone or chooses to be so this morning would not walk out of here without surrendering to you and pulling someone close and saying, hey, would you help me? We need each other and we need you. And you've given us everything we need for these relationships and our ability to carry out the commandments that Christ has given us. We thank you for that. So Lord, help us. We ask this in the name of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.